Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. Here is the next instalment of the Gourmet Gospel, concluding section 7. Enjoy! Freedom in Art Quotes There's no boundary line to art. Charlie Parker In writing a play or a book, I am concerned entirely with literature, that is, with art. I aim not at doing good or evil, but at making a thing that will have some quality of beauty. Oscar Wilde Poetic license, justifiable departure from conventional rules of form, fact, logic, etc. The Collins English Dictionary I love Argentine tango. It is poetry in motion, with all the grace and poise of international ballroom dancing, but without the formality, an art form that affords dancers limitless scope to invent their own steps. Above all, it is a living defiance of law in art. In the words of my teacher, Walter Zielinski, There are no rules in tango. It was born on the street, not in a ballroom or a dance studio. Tango was created by many different people with many different styles. No one can tell you, this is wrong, this is right. In the same spirit, when I became a dance teacher myself, I steered students away from thinking in terms of whether something was right, but instead whether it looked beautiful or could be made more beautiful. It is a principle that breathes life into every creative endeavour. For artists operate where there is no law, and because there is no law, there is no sin. There is no boundary line to cross between good and bad. The artist returns to innocence to a place of not knowing, that place that precedes the prohibition against eating from the forbidden tree, that precedes even awareness that there could be such a thing as evil. The following comment about rules in poetry from the great essayist Sir William Temple could apply to any art form. "'Tis as if, to make excellent honey, you should cut off the wings of your bees, confine them to their hives or their stands, and lay flowers before them, such as you think the sweetest and like to yield the finest extraction. You might as well pull out their stings and make arrant drones of them. They must range through fields as well as gardens, choose such flowers as they please, by properties and scents they only know and distinguish. The utmost that can be achieved, or I think pretended by any rules in this art, is but to hinder some men from being very ill poets, but not to make any man a very good one. The great novelist Henry Fielding also complained that many rules for good writing have been established which have not the least foundation in truth or nature, and which commonly serve for no other purpose than to curb and restrain genius. And Alexander Pope, in his immortal poem An Essay on Criticism, sets poetry free from the vulgar bounds of rules, arguing it is rather the stuff of nameless graces which no methods teach. The same may be said of language itself. Dr Samuel Johnson, prefacing his famed Dictionary of the English Language of 1755, recognised that 
sounds are too volatile and subtle for legal restraints. To enchain syllables and to lash the wind are equally the undertakings of pride. In The Story of English, a book that traces the language's history over two millennia, the author's note attempts to establish an academy along French or Italian lines have failed because they run counter to the amateur tradition of English literary scholarship. The English language cannot be controlled by legislation or remade by committees. English has its own momentum and its own laws. The Instinctive Impulse Quotes All this talk about the method, the method, what method? I thought each of us had our own method. Laurence Olivier Logical argument is what destroys poetry, because poetry is beyond logic. Robert Graves And Nijinsky hadn't the words to make the laws for learning to loiter in air. He merely said, I merely leap and pause. Richard Wilbur The artist's heart, aligned with the will of God, acknowledges no law but that which is within, whether painting the smile of the Mona Lisa, illuminating the Magi, embodying the seasons in a string quartet, or unfolding the mysteries of the human heart in the lines of Hamlet. His mind set on what the spirit desires, whether in conscious, subconscious or superconscious realms, the life of God flows from within him like streams of living water. God's spirit joined with his spirit, dwelling in him as marrow in the bones. He fashions, in service to his life's purpose and joy, great works of art that honour the Creator's call and reveal, as Shakespeare puts it, a heavenly effect in an earthly actor. The appearance of that heavenly effect varies according to the unique lens of each artist through whom it shines. The real truth is that there is never any such thing as one truth to be found in dramatic art, observed the playwright Harold Pinter. There are many. These truths challenge each other, recoil from each other, reflect each other, ignore each other, tease each other. So, in holding the mirror up to nature, again quoting Shakespeare, the artist's own discretion is his tutor. The word became flesh. Speaking of actors, there can be no more divine calling. For just as Christ is the word made flesh, the actor is the word of the playwright made flesh. Meanwhile, by losing himself in the character he plays, the actor also embodies Christ's calling to lose his life in order that he may find it. His body and voice express his source in the true vine of Christ, and as a tree produces its own variety of fruit according to its type, the actor of indivisible heart does not outlaw anything he is experiencing. This is surely the effect achieved by the late Alan Rickman, the British actor who played Snape in the Harry Potter film series. It's like he's taken all the punctuation marks out and thrown them back in odd places, observes fellow cast member Jason Isaacs, 
And that's part of his genius. It's mesmerizing. What then, if an actor experiences doubt or any other thoughts alien to the joy and peace of the Holy Spirit? In a spirit of compassion for himself, he can return his focus in an instant to some symbol of his love that, as with the unbendable arm exercise, holds his attention so magnetically that the former petty concerns become irrelevant. The symbol used may include some trait or association with a character embodied. For example, when I played the fairy king Oberon in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, I imagined my arms were wings, and when I played the 19th century watchmaker Antony Patek, I imagined a clockwork owl. In both cases, a trick of imagination protected me from the predations of doubt. And sometimes the symbol is given in the text, as in Macbeth's, Is this a dagger which I see before me? These symbols can usher the actor into that sort of hypnosis, into a trance-like state, described by the great British actor Chiwetel Ejiofor, star of Twelve Years a Slave, Kinky Boots and Come Sunday, in his roles. Being in character is the only protection against self. Intense visualization is part of the acting journey. It protects you from all of the other things, and you are free to express yourself artistically without ever feeling vulnerable personally. In the parlance of that great metaphysical work, The Cabalion, such levers of imagination use the higher over the lower, so that we are not attempting to fix perceived problems such as doubt and fear, but transcending them. The faculty of imagination, or in the words of Ejiofor, intense visualization, maintains that higher focus. And if we should momentarily lose that connection, our attention somehow turning to the scary wind and waves that distracted Peter as he walked on water towards Jesus, love will reach out his hand and catch us with the gentle admonition. Why did you doubt? See immutability above. The Artist as Priest Quotes Art has a spiritual ministry. It can raise and sanctify everything it touches, and popular disapproval must not impede its progress. Art is what makes the life of each citizen a sacrament. Art is what makes the life of the whole race immortal. Oscar Wilde A great poet packs enough life into a sonnet to fill the average sleepy mortal seventy years. If you have the stamina to swallow your ideas straight, Read poetry. I get contact with the fieriest minds that have ever flamed in human bodies. Into my pigeonholed mind, poetry has rolled a wave of the intimate, star-filled universe. Anonymous String theory was officially born in 1970, postulating that different particles are as different musical notes on a stringed instrument the theory has enjoyed widespread recognition and acceptance since the mid-1980s. But for all their brilliance, astrophysicists weren't the first to recognise the connection between particles and music. In Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, for instance, Lorenzo tells Jessica, as they contemplate the floor of heaven above them, 
there's not the smallest orb which thou beholdst, but in his motion like an angel sings, still quiring to the young-eyed cherubins. In 1870, when scientists believe nothing lived below a depth of 600 metres in the oceans, Jules Verne wrote in 20,000 leagues under the sea, The sea is an immense desert where man is never alone, for he feels life quivering around him on every side. Now science has caught up to the fact that there are more species in the deep ocean than in the rest of the planet put together. So what enables writers to grasp divine mysteries centuries before scientists? The answer must lie in the artist's familiarity with realms of imagination and intuition where the Holy Spirit dwells, deep in mysterious places that deductive reasoning cannot reach. However, this is not to deny scientists access to the same faculties. Einstein himself said, I believe in intuitions and inspirations. I am enough of the artist to draw freely upon my imagination. Imagination is more important than knowledge. The great theatre director Max Reinhardt asks, What is it that distinguishes the artist? It is that he reacts to whatever he encounters deeply and powerfully, that things hardly visible, hardly audible, stir and move him. Again, this is especially true of the actor who attempts to fly above his narrow material existence, the possibilities inherent in him but not brought to full growth by his life, thus unfolded their shadowy wings and carried him far over his knowledge and away into the heart of a strange experience. He discovered all the delights of transformation, all the ecstasy of passion, all the elusive life of dreams. Artists also take on the priestly role of communicating the divine to humanity and vice versa, while identifying with humanity's predicament, becoming, again to quote these lines of Shakespeare, the very opener and intelligencer between the grace, the sanctities of heaven, and our dull workings. The actor exemplifies this ministry, and the clown in particular identifies with the shortcomings of the human condition, according to British actress Emma Thompson. The really good clown comes on and fails miserably. Just by coming on, a clown makes people laugh because you are saying, I shouldn't be here at all, I can't do this. It's about failing. It's wonderful because laughter is a celebration of all our failings, that recognition that we are not gods, that we are human. That's what clowns are for, that's why they are important. I've discussed the value of failure in creative work. Failure is terribly important. Perhaps that's what I'm saying. The notion that failure is a negative thing is wrong. And, along with a priestly role, we may infer a prophetic one too. As Todd London writes of the theatre community, In direct contradiction to the rest of American life, with its corporate culture and party lines, life in our village demands that we take things personally. In an increasingly media-filtered, mass-market society, theatre's definite personalness becomes a reminder, a call from our most submerged selves, a necessary defiance against bland life and institutional behaviour, against correctness, against denial, 
It's our radical assault on what sociologist Irving Goffman frighteningly called the bureaucratization of the spirit. Like the psalmist, the artist is stirred by a noble theme. With Tennyson he sees, through his own soul, the marvel of the everlasting will, and from that inspiration brings forth new treasures as well as old. Thus is he empowered to create that which is lovely, admirable, noble, excellent, and praiseworthy. The Ministry of Dionysus In all of Greek mythology, the most Christ-like of the gods has to be Dionysus, snatched to a place of safety after birth to protect him from the murderous intents of Hera, he was not just god of the vine, but also became the god of artistic inspiration, celebrated annually in ancient Greece with a five-day theatre festival. During these days, according to the great classicist Edith Hamilton, the ordinary business of life stopped. No one could be put in prison. Prisoners were even released so that they could share in the general rejoicing. But Dionysus was also a sufferer. The vine is always pruned as nothing else that bears fruit. Every branch cut away, only the bare stock left. Through the winter, a dead thing to look at. An old gnarled stump seeming incapable of ever putting forth leaves again. Like Persephone, Dionysus died with the coming of the cold. Unlike her, he suffered a terrible death. He was torn to pieces, in some stories by the Titans, in others by Hera's orders. He was always brought back to life. He died and rose again. It was his joyful resurrection they celebrated in his theatre. Thus Dionysus came to be. The assurance that death does not end all. His worshippers believed that his death and resurrection showed that the soul lives on forever after the body dies. In his resurrection, he was the embodiment of the life that is stronger than death. He, and not Persephone, became the centre of the belief in immortality. So, in the Greek mindset, and in this Christ-like figure, we have a model of death and resurrection, as well as an exemplar of the performing arts. The Critics Cant Quotes After Momus pronounced all his judgments, Jupiter drove the critic out of heaven and told him that a fault-finder could never be pleased and that he should stop criticizing the works of others until he had created something worthwhile himself. Aesop, Jupiter, Neptune, Minerva and Momus Pedant, one who emphasizes trivial points of learning, a narrow-minded teacher who insists on exact adherence to rules. Webster's Dictionary When the flush of a newborn sun fell first on Eden's green and gold, our father Adam sat under the tree and scratched with a stick in the mould, and the first rude sketch that the world had seen was joy to his mighty heart, till the devil whispered behind the leaves, It's pretty, but is it art? Rudyard Kipling the conundrum of the workshops. I love Prospero's epilogue in The Tempest, which includes the lines, My ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer. 
But my love for this speech deepened one afternoon as I spoke it on stage and saw tears in the eyes of an audience member. In that moment, I realized the enormity of Prospero's decision to leave his island, his magic, his books, and return to Milan. Thus may an audience member bless the sacred ground of the stage, endowing it with laughter, tears, applause, gasps, and awed silences. Are not these praises among an actor's wages? When theatre is perfect, writes British playwright Tom Stoppard, the stage would disappear, the character and the audience are one, as if the audience had been hand-picked one by one by God. Such a listener is one disposed, in Shakespeare's words, to piece out our imperfections with your thoughts, gently to hear, kindly to judge our play. Or, as Alexander Pope put it, a perfect judge will read each work of wit with the same spirit that its author writ, survey the whole, nor seek slight faults to find, where nature moves and rapture warms the mind. But in the same work, Pope warns against the depredations of the critic. Neglect the rules each verbal critic lays, for not to know some trifles is a praise. Most critics, fond of some subservient art, still make the whole depend upon a part. So let us draw a distinction between reviewer and critic, in which the latter tribe are, to quote the great stage actress Ellen Terry, 1847-1928, to sharp of eye, but oh, how dull of vision. They are to art what the Pharisees were to faith, a brood of vipers, according to Jesus, who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. See also straining gnats below. An actor on stage is in the light and vulnerable, bears his soul, risks everything, while the critic sits in the dark, invulnerable, risking nothing. So let the critic remember, in his little brief authority, to tread softly because you tread on my dreams, in the words of Yeats, to inhabit a supportive as opposed to parasitic role, and to ride us with one soft kiss a thousand furlongs, ere with spur we heat an acre. Nor, on the other hand, is the reviewer's calling that of a mercenary hireling, ready to talk up a shower to producers bidding or bribery, with made-for-advertising quotes in support of a lucrative but hollow production. Virtuous commentary on art is like a handmaiden dressing the charms of her mistress, according to Pope, but critics who could not win the mistress wooed the maid. Another author who railed against the breed was Henry Fielding. Now in reality, the world had paid too great a compliment to critics, and I've imagined them men of much greater profundity than they really are. From this complacence, the critics have been emboldened to assume a dictatorial power, and have so far succeeded that they are now become the masters and have the assurance to give laws. It is perhaps the same spirit of verbal violence that Michal, in her jealousy, attempted against King David after he danced before the Ark of God. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, 
Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. Dante even imagines a section of hell, the third part of the seventh circle in Inferno, for those who have committed violence to art and must now languish on a plain of burning sand, their naked bodies assailed by great flakes of flame that fall like snow. Still, if ever a critic's words are directed at you, you may regard them as mist. They cannot enter, much less affect, the realm of your indestructible and immutable essence. See Immutability above. You've been listening to my audiobook recording of The Gourmet Gospel. You can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprophet.com, where prophet spelt P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy. <laughs>